Hello and welcome to our latest episode of podcast for the Illawarra Shoalhaven, ISMacast. Today I'm going to do something a little different. Uh, I'm going to start with a description of a case and then work through some of the evidence for what we do and possibly some of the explanation for why what we do is so variable. So here we have a 36-year-old guy who's got no significant background of illness. He's been digging in the garden, stuck the spade into the ground and uh, got acute severe onset of low back pain to the point where he was having difficulty mobilising. There's no radicular component. He doesn't have any systemic symptoms and he doesn't have any uh, um, background use of medications or any allergies. When you go to see him in the emergency department, he's lying on the bed, he's in intense pain, he can't mobilise to the toilet currently uh, and he's got that plea in his eyes for help me get some relief from this particular problem. And the questions that face us routinely are, number one, obviously, how do we relieve his pain? Um, but then the next questions and the areas of variability relate to who gets blood tests, who gets imaging, and what sort of discharge advice do we actually give him? So let's take a look at this from a general perspective. Most of the literature looking at back pain in emergency departments is of fairly poor quality, and back pain is a reality of life for probably the majority of us at some point. Uh, the older you get, the more likely it is that you're actually going to have an episode, and it's one of the prices that you pay for standing on two legs instead of four. Um, a lot of what we do in the ED is actually extrapolated from primary care literature, the um, and most comes to the conclusion that there's very limited benefit in really anything that we actually put forward, any of the medications, any of the interventions. Uh, and then when people try to create meta-analyses of these things, um, they're really not that effective because generally the studies are fairly poor quality. So what we'll deal with, first of all, if our first issue, first question is pain relief, um, the Real question is, okay, how are we going to achieve that and what evidence do we have for it? The obvious thing that comes to mind is opiates. Now, opiate use in the setting of uh, low back pain, acute low back pain in the emergency department, um, its efficacy is inferred from other acute pain studies. This is from a uh, state-of-the-art review from the BMJ in 2015. Um, they outline that it doesn't improve any return to work or any functional status in primary care populations. It might have some short-term analgesic efficacy, uh, but no clear functional benefit. Um, and it does have the risks of addiction, overdose-related mortality, uh, and that those things have actually risen in parallel with the increasing prescription rates of opiates. Now, to an extent, that's not necessarily ED uh, relevant because it's, uh, it's longer-term use of opiates but we're often seen as the gateway to that particular process. In, on top of that, there are the short-term side effects, constipation, nausea, sedation, and uh, in the older people, there's an increased risk of falls and fractures. The uh, Then layer on top of that again, some longer-term side effects. You've got depression, sexual dysfunction, uh, so medications that aren't without their capacity for harm. Leading on from that concept of harm uh, and the evidence for opiates potentially causing that, there was a study in 2013 uh, in pain um, where they looked at 715 primary care patients with low back pain. Two-thirds had acute pain, one-third received opioids. 
the uh, the people receiving opioids had worse pain, um, they had poorer function, uh, they catastrophized more often, um, had fear of movement, and they had depression. Even after adjusting for baseline variables, um, the patients who received opioids had worse functioning after six months than those who didn't. Now, that's more of an association than a cause and effect, but uh, it has raised the hypothesis that there might be an issue with longer-term use of opiates uh, actually being harmful. The next group of medications we commonly use, uh, the NSAIDs, um, there was a randomised, uh, sorry, a systematic review of randomised controlled trials um, done back in 1997, because um, we've been doing this for a long time. Uh, it was in analysis of rheumatological diseases, and they looked at the use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs in low back pain and just how efficacious they would be. Methodology scores for most of the studies weren't great. Uh, the Overall, they reported that the findings favoured NSAIDs in, in nine of the 26 studies. Um, they found positive results when it was when NSAIDs were compared with placebo in um, five of ten studies. Uh, several studies actually showed that there was no effect of NSAIDs uh, if the patient also had radicular type pain. Three of nine studies where the NSAIDs were compared against other drugs um, didn't show any benefit to using NSAIDs above the other drugs. Um, and three of 11 studies comparing NSAIDs with other NSAIDs really didn't show any difference between them. Um, the incidence of NSAID side effects in that particular uh, group of studies was anywhere between 0 and 31%. That said, most of the side effects they quoted were uh, somewhere in the mild to moderate range. The next um, paper to talk about is non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs for low back pain, a review, a Cochrane review in 2008. Uh, this particular review looked at um, 65 trials uh, and suggested that the NSAIDs are effective for short-term symptomatic relief, um, the, but the effects are actually quite small. Um, and there doesn't seem to be a specific type of NSAID that is clearly more effective than the others. The selective COX-2 inhibitors showed fewer side effects compared to traditional NSAIDs uh, in the randomized control trials that they actually included in this. But the downside, of course, is that um, they have also begun to demonstrate increased cardiovascular risks with the use of COX-2 inhibitors. Next step in this process uh, is much more recent, 2015. Um, there are actually two papers that came out, one in the Annals of Rheumatological Diseases and one in the BMJ, both with the same lead author, a guy by the name of Machado. The first one in the uh, Annals of Rheumatological Diseases looked at non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs for spinal pain, a systematic review in meta-analysis. Uh, what they found was that NSAIDs were effective um, over placebo, but really with minimal difference. Um, their absolute minimum difference for any clinical, clinical significance they figured was somewhere uh, was 10 points out of 100, uh, and they were scoring sort of 11 or 12 out of 100 difference between NSAIDs and placebo. In the end, what they figured was the number needed to treat for any benefit was six. Then uh, the, there was a paper on uh, the use of paracetamol in a similar circumstance, and it found that there was actually no benefit uh, of using paracetamol uh, as a pain-relieving agent um, in the setting of low back pain. That wasn't paracetamol in isolation. That was paracetamol in combination with uh, other medications. 
finally, when we're talking about NSAIDs, if we are going to say that there's some benefit to using NSAIDs and that's what we're going to use, the question becomes which one? And one of the common things that uh, we see in emergency departments is the use of ketorolac as an agent the, uh, on the premise that uh, it has some significant benefits over other non-steroidals because it doesn't have to be taken orally, uh, the, patient, the effect for the patient in terms, uh, in terms of analgesia because you're actually administering um, an agent which is parenteral, an injection is going to be better. Uh, so that's the sort of thinking process behind it, uh, efficacy being seen as greater with the use of a parenteral agent. Well, back in 2007, um, there was a paper in the Canadian uh, Association, of, Journal of the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians, uh, which was put together by a number of well-known characters from uh, emergency medicine education, Mel Herbert uh, and Sanjay Arora uh, included. And it was in medical mythology. And the myth was that parenteral ketorolac provides more effective analgesia than oral ibuprofen. Um, and their conclusion at the end of it was, based on the evidence, the, uh, the belief that IM, IV medications are perceived as being stronger than oral medications and therefore result in a more powerful placebo effect has been shown to be false. And with the exception of one study in post-op patients with a significantly flawed study design, the evidence overwhelmingly shows that inexpensive and relatively safe oral ibuprofen has equal efficacy to the more expensive and potentially dangerous IM or IV ketorolac. Now, you might say, what's the story with this potentially dangerous? Well, we know that all NSAIDs carry with them a potential risk of uh, particularly GI issues and to uh, an extent uh, renal dysfunction. Uh, there's a paper that uh, came out of um, Italy, uh, the, which was ketorolac use in outpatients and gastrointestinal hospitalization in comparison with other non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Um, and in that particular paper, um, they showed that ketorolac had, had an odds ratio of ulcer formation of 9.8 uh, with confidence intervals 3.4 to 28.1 uh, versus any other NSAID uh, or the grouping of other NSAIDs of 1.9 with, with the confidence intervals 1.3 to 3.0. Now, understood that uh, we're talking about use for periods of potentially out to seven days uh, and for some of them longer. Uh, but it still raises the issue that ketorolac uh, has a higher um, rate of complications relative to other NSAIDs. All right, the, um, the next group of medications that we commonly see used are uh, muscle relaxants. Most commonly in the emergency department, uh, we see people using diazepam, um, but um, other agents get used. Um, uh, the baclofen uh, being one uh, which would be uh, probably amongst the more common in terms of managing the acute back pain. So do they work? There's been a systematic review in 2003 um, using Cochrane methodology, um, and they found that um, studies comparing muscle relaxants and placebo um, gave strong evidence of a benefit of a brief uh, course of non-benzodiazepines, so that's cyclobenzaprine, curisoprodol, meprobamate uh, for acute low back pain. The evidence was less convincing in terms of benzos for acute low back pain uh, or non-benzodiazepines for chronic low back pain. No trials directly compared muscle relaxants and analgesics. 
but the review suggested some strong evidence that improvement was uh, facilitated and recovery hastened if you added in uh, the muscle relaxants. The next study to mention is a, a paper in 2017 by a gentleman by the name of Friedman um, who looked at uh, diazepam uh, in combination with naproxen for acute low back pain. This is Annals of Emergency Medicine in January of 2017. 114 patients aged 21 to 69 with non-radicular, non-traumatic low back pain, two weeks duration or less. Um, the, they administered um, diazepam uh, or placebo. Most patients had recovered by three months. No differences between groups in pain or function. Back, back pain was considered moderate to severe by 32% of the diazepam patients versus 22% of placebo patients at one week and by 12% and 9% respectively at three months. So the trend, uh, even though not significant, was actually towards placebo rather than diazepam. Um, the study had, was fairly limited because they had some strict entry criteria. Only 21% of those screened were randomised, so how applicable it is to real life is uh, open to question. Um, and there was also an element of dosing as needed rather than uh, regular dosing that came into play, so um, the, the study itself wasn't perfect. Looking at non-benzodiazepine uh, muscle relaxants, uh, we don't have cyclobenzaprine here in Australia, um, but there was a meta-analysis meta looking at that particular medication um, and showed that it demonstrated a, a significantly more effective um, control of the back pain and improvement in function uh, over placebo uh, in 2001. Finally, there is uh, the same gentleman, Friedman, again in 2015, who, uh, um, who came out with a paper looking at naproxen combined with either cyclobenzaprine or oxycodone acetaminophen or placebo for treating acute low back pain. And this was in JAMA uh, of October 20th, 2015. What he found was that there was no significant difference between the groups in improvement at one week um, so he got, in terms of pain control, 11.1 points out of 100 uh, with oxycodone and acetaminophen group, 10.1 on the cyclobenzaprine group, and 9.8 for placebo-treated controls. So, and they also they also looked at some other one-week outcomes, including including uh, elements of functionality, and they were pretty similar as well. Adverse events were more common with oxycodone and acetaminophen than they were were with placebo, and the number needed to harm there was five. Uh, they were more common with cyclobenzaprine than placebo. The number needed to harm there was eight. Um, physical function and pain didn't differ between the groups at three months. All right, so next phase. Who do we investigate and what investigations do we do? There's a uh, review of the approach to managing non-traumatic acute back pain in Annals of Emergency Medicine from 2014 by um, <clears throat> an emergency physician there, Jonathan Edlow, who's got a big name in and reputation in uh, neurological issues that present to the emergency department. What he pointed out in that review was, uh, when reading the literature, uh, that there was routine laboratory testing not helpful. Elevated white cell counts are found in only two-thirds of patients with spinal epidural abscesses. Uh, inflammatory markers like ESRC reactive protein might be highly sensitive, um, but they're non-specific for things like epidural abscess and to a lesser extent cancer. 
there are a couple of small papers, the uh, 2011 and 1988, uh, that gave similar sorts of answers and raised the issue that um, the threshold is a problem. If you look at something like an ESR, if you get an ESR that's um, greater than 20 millimetres per hour, uh, that has a 100% sensitivity in these particular studies for something like a spinal epidural abscess. The only problem is that the vast majority of those positives are, in fact, false positives. Um, so the suggestion from the review was that if we're looking at things like blood tests, then we should only do those uh, in the setting where we figure we have red flags there are a couple of uh, papers that have looked at imaging strategies. The um, uh, one from 2009, a systematic review and meta-analysis, um, they looked at 804 patients from six studies, uh, looked at no imaging versus imaging, and the imaging they chose to use was either spine X-ray or MRI. What they found in that particular study was no difference in outcomes. That was in the Lancet 2009. Um, the next paper is one by Javik uh, and Associates in JAMA in 2003. Um, there they looked at 380 back pain patients, uh, and those patients that had X-rays uh, ordered or MRIs. The, the UCMRI did not improve outcomes, but it did increase costs. And the increase in costs wasn't just to do with the number of tests. It was also to do with the increased number of procedures that happened to those patients who had abnormalities identified on MRI that weren't, in fact, the cause of their problem. What they showed, uh, or what has been shown, is that in fully 52% of asymptomatic individuals with no history of back pain, there will be disc bulges on MRI, and 27% will have disc protrusions, the stuff that we go looking for as potential causes for uh, the underlying pain. So the summation with that imaging stuff really is uh, only go looking for that if you have serious concerns with regard to red flags. Just a quick summary of what those red flags might be for things like cord or cord equinor compression. Um, on history, if you're looking for epidural abscess, you're looking for fever, immunocompromised, intravenous drug abuse, uh, or a history of bacteremia. If you're thinking about epidural tumours, then there's going to be a history of systemic cancer or unexplained significant weight loss. If you're thinking about epidural hematoma, someone who's got on anticoagulation uh, or has had a recent spinal anesthesia where people have been sticking things in their backs. Uh, in general, if you've got someone who's got new frequent falls or ataxia, um, more than three weeks of midline pain, pain at night that's waking them up, sphincter incontinence or urinary urgency, or bilateral leg symptoms. They're the people who you're going to be uh, seriously thinking about whether you should uh, do some imaging at that point. Physical examination markers, they're fairly straightforward. Uh, the key one, obviously, is motor weakness um, in uh, legs or arms. Uh, the sensory change you would be looking for would be either a sensory level or saddle anesthesia, not a dermatomal sensory loss, uh, and reflex changes that would go along with the motor issues uh, mentioned before. And finally, the big one, sphincter dysfunction, lax rectal tone, uh, unable to uh, enter the bladder appropriately, greater than 100 mils in the bladder. So with all that in the background, what do we actually do with these patients? Well, none of that precludes us uh, actually treating the patients with some of those medications, and I'll go through those in a second. But a key to managing these patients is, in fact, setting expectations. 
the uh, there's a couple of patients that uh, uh, sorry a couple of papers that um, that outline the sort of expected natural history of low back pain. It's very important that we actually outlay to these people that we're not going to be able to get rid of their pain. Uh, our aim is to actually get enough control such that they're able to carry out basic functions, get themselves to a bathroom, get themselves food, those sorts of things. Um, the rest of it is going to relate to time largely. The uh, A paper in uh, from the Annals of Emergency Medicine from 2012 looked at one week and three month outcomes after an ED visit for undifferentiated musculoskeletal low back pain. And it's this guy Friedman again who'd uh, done the papers on um, uh, uh, muscle relaxants and um, and on NSAIDs. The, uh, so they ran some telephone interviews at one week and three months uh, in 556 adults. One week after discharge, 70% of the patients reported functional impairment due to low back pain. So 7 out of 10 patients still had significant functional limitation at the end of a week. Um, only 36% had actually import, reported significant improvement. So one in, one in three is going to say they feel significantly better at the end of a week. 83% reported some level of ongoing pain during the previous 24 hours. When they repeated the process at three months, 48% of the patients reported some functional impairment due to low back pain. So it's almost half at three months are still impaired by their back pain. 54% reported clinically significant improvement. And only 41% reported no back pain in the previous 24 hours. So you've got a four out of 10 chance of having no pain at the end of three months. Um, the use of opioid analgesics for their back pain was reported by one in three uh, patients um, at one week and uh, one in five at three months. For those patients who were employed when they first presented the emergency department, 19% um, still weren't working after three months. Sounds like a big number, certainly in terms of uh, um, what we might see. Um, and returns to ED during the three-month period were reported by 14% of patients. So it's not a condition that gets better in a hurry. It's not a condition that you can expect to say in a day or so all is going to be good. Um, there's a significant proportion of people who will have ongoing symptoms laying out to possibly even out to 6 to 12 months. There was another paper from 2012 uh, which also pointed out is it time to rethink the typical cause of low back pain because a lot of what we have uh, taught our patients over the years, again, has come from uh, rehabilitation medicine or from primary care. Uh, this particular study also surveyed just over 500 patients uh, aged 18 to 85, um, looking at those who'd had a previous episode of low back pain. Um, and... Uh, it was run at 30 different locations. 54% stated that, that they had experienced 10 or more episodes of back pain in the, up, to their, up to that particular point of presentation. 19% reported more than 50 episodes over a lifetime. 35% reported that their initial episode lasted longer than three months. And most of the patients who reported recurrent episodes stated that their symptoms in at least one of what they described as five domains was worse in the more recent episodes than it had been in the initial episodes. Now, there's all sorts of recall bias that's going to come into that, but the whole package comes together to say that this is not a simple problem which will be better and uh, patient symptom-free within a short time frame. Uh, some will get better in a short time frame, but uh, others have to be patient. So how do we sum all that up? First thing is 
premium non-luxury, I think it's important that whilst uh, we may continue to use medications for control of these patients with back pain or control of their symptoms, we should probably look at avoiding medications with either a poor side effect profile or that have de definitively been demonstrated not to work. And what would come into that category would be benzodiazepine muscle relaxants, primarily because A, they don't seem to work, and B, they do have a significant side effect profile, antispasmodic muscle relaxants, and ketorolac. The, uh, we can continue to treat acute and severe pain like any other pain presentation. My personal approach is if someone comes in with severe back pain, I'm more than happy to give them uh, a parenteral opiate up front the um, in association with oral opiates, paracetamol, and an NSAID, the uh, idea being to sort of break the pain early or the, the worst of the pain to the point where they can actually start to get some functionality back in the department um, and then rely on that degree of mobility and ongoing pain management and the discussion with them to continue the ongoing control of the pain. We also need to rule out red flags, obviously. The, um, we need to set their expectations and outline for them that most medications will have a limited effect, even opiates, and that if we give them opiates, there's a, a risk in, in ongoing use. If used at all, my approach is to, in terms of ongoing opiates, my approach is to uh, limit them in a time fashion. So doses for 48 hours, not to have any more than that to fall back on a combination of paracetamol on the premise that it's not going to do any harm and the uh, methodology in these studies hasn't been great, the uh, plus uh, amon steroidal. Also to outline to them that, that they can't expect that they will be significantly better uh, within a few days, um, that there may be a, a significant risk that they'll have symptoms going out to three months and potentially even out to 12 months uh, and that the whole process will slowly but surely settle down um, and obviously give them the, um, the symptoms to look out for uh, that would raise the red flags. Well, that's the lot for this particular session. Um, I hope that's of some use to you. Uh, and I'll attach uh, some of the references that um, I've quoted in here uh, onto the website that goes along with this.